Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov and I'm the director of the Global Summitry Project. It's a pleasure to be back with you. As always, the project activity can be found at the globalsummitryproject.com website. There you will find our two major research projects, one the CWD or the China and the West Dialogue, and also uh, the um, research we're doing on Agenda 2030 and the Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, you also find there, of course, our podcast series, the Shaking the Global Order series, the Summit Dialogue, and the Now series. And you will also find at the website uh, all the e-journal activity for uh, Global Summitry. Today, it's a real pleasure to have a return visit from uh, Matt Goodman from CSIS. Uh, we are keenly interested in uh, this podcast episode, Series 2, Episode 14 in Shaking the Global Order, to uh, explore with Matt the uh, Indo-Pacific strategy and the Biden administration policy uh, generally in the region. Most particularly, we wanted to discuss with Matt uh, the new Biden uh, economic uh, initiatives, most particularly, of course, IPEF, which is the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, and what apparently the Australians now called PIGI, or the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment that was announced at the conclusion of the G7 summit in Germany. So um, it's going to be a, a jam-packed podcast. Let me just introduce to you briefly uh, Matt Goodman. He is Senior Vice President, uh, Senior Advisor for Asian Economics, and he holds the Simon Chair in Political Economy in, uh, Washington, and at Washington's CSIS. Um, Matt has served both in, in the private sector and, interestingly, in the public sector, including uh, at the U.S. Treasury Department and the Tokyo Embassy. He was also Director of International Economics on the National Se uh, Security Council, and that had special responsibility for the G20 and the G8. And uh, he was also former White House Coordinator for the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, or APEC, and East Asia Summit, or EAS. He's been very involved in um, the Indo-Pacific for quite a long time. So it's a great pleasure to welcome back into uh, the virtual studio, Matthew Goodman from CSIS. So welcome, Matt, uh, back to the virtual studio to talk about uh, Indo-Pacific uh, and U.S.-China relations. Thanks, Alan. Great to be here. Super. So let's, you know, it's hard not to in international relations at the moment. Let's start with, uh, with the war in Ukraine. Um, clearly, it's had a major impact uh, on um, uh, a variety of relations in the international system, and that includes uh, the U.S.-China uh, relationship. Um, so looking at, you know, China's um, policy and behavior, it, it's quite 
contradictory, right? So on the one hand, uh, China has, uh, and Beijing has been careful to signal its uh, commitment to rock-solid Sino-Russian partnership. But on the other hand, uh, China has uh, declared firm support for sovereignty, territorial integrity, in other words, a rules-based order, and has called to uh, for all the countries to exercise restraint. So the question really is, can, can China ride both horses uh, on this? No, it's a great question. And it's clear that Beijing is trying to sort of straddle the fence and, and uh, as you say, um, uh, keep the Russia relationship intact while not crossing the line of um, of really uh, ticking us off, which I think it boils down to. Um, they um, they uh, have been pretty careful, you know, to honor the sanctions or honor is maybe too strong a word, but but the, the, it appears that that they are not, um, you know, they're discouraging their companies or their companies are self discouraging themselves from. Uh, right. from trying to do an end run around the sanctions. Um, they're not, you know, visibly um, replacing a lot of the Russian, um, uh, you know, purchases of, of Russian uh, things, although, you know, in the energy markets, you know, they're clearly right. still right. buying from Russia. Um, and then, uh, you know, as far as I know, they're not selling military equipment or anything to um, to Russia. But, um but on the other hand, you know, they do have this relationship without limits or whatever uh, Xi Jinping and, and Vladimir Putin agreed to on February 4th. Um, right. And, you know, here in Washington, I think the perception is very much that they're, you know, kind of leaning into Russia that um, that, mm-hmm. um, you know, that that there is a kind of new um, at least, um, you know, partnership that uh, that is, um, you know, a new reality on the geopolitical landscape that we have to deal with. Um, you know, and then there are the questions around the implications of Russia, Ukraine for China, Taiwan, which is a big topic of conversation here as well. So there's a lot of um, signal there, 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 there are issues on both sides of that, you know, of that fence that I think we're, we're certainly interested in seeing how Beijing okay. moves forward. Okay. Let me pick up on that uh, thought about uh, Taiwan. Uh, I mean, what do you think the Chinese kind of take away from Putin's actions in the Ukraine vis-a-vis Taiwan and Taiwan reunification? Are there lessons that they're learning or uh, do they see these as separate? uh, separate Well, I mean... I think in Beijing's eyes, these are different things because in their view, Taiwan is part of, you know, Chinese so- China, sovereign territory. Yeah. And and so any effort to reintegrate Taiwan is just part of, you know, the, the normal order of things, as it were. Um, whereas, you know, Russia's action in Ukraine, you know, even by Chinese um, standards is is clearly, you know, a, a violation of another country's sovereignty. I, um, I, I mean, I, th- I think they... They see that. And it is, in fact, you know, you could have imagined a, a world in which Beijing's reaction to the invasion of Ukraine had been to criticize Russia, you know, for mm-hmm. violating another country's sovereignty for, you know, they they frequently talk about not interfering in other countries' internal affairs. And this is, you know, an extreme example of that. And it's interesting they chose not to do that. Um, so, um I I think they you know shows that they really don't want to um, you know break away clearly from or Xi Jinping doesn't want to break away 
break from uh, Vladimir Putin, at least at this stage. Yeah. But, you know, I think it's got to have um, a couple of things. I mean, I think it obviously has got to have raised uh, in Beijing's minds the questions about uh, what the timetable might be for ultimately integration of Taiwan. I think it just naturally, even though despite what I said, the differences, I mean, I think it's got to have sort of put a, a finer point on on their plans for reunification, as it were. And certainly here in D.C., it's being interpreted as, uh, you know, as having uh, potentially shaped Beijing's thinking about when to move on Taiwan, which I think many analysts here feel is, a, is just a matter of time. Um, the, the way it's done and exactly when is a different question, but I think most people sort of think that Beijing's long-term plan is to is to do that. Um, and then, you know, the the uh, you know the other question that, that that obviously arises here is is does uh, Beijing how does Beijing see the the Western reaction and the sanctions, um, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and the implications of that for any potential you know move on Taiwan. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, it must give them pause that uh, that um, that we've been so unified with our allies and partners and, and we've gone so far and so deep with sanctions. And uh, that must raise sort of a risk calculation in their mind. On the other hand, you know, the sanctions haven't really worked, uh, at least in terms of the ultimate objective of getting Russia to stop its aggression yeah. and pull out of yeah. Ukraine. Um, and, you know, Russia and China are very different. So the the actual uh, implications of applying similar sanctions on China would be very different. So I'm not sure what they, how they Conclude. balance all that out, what their net assessment is, but it's got to be something they're thinking about. Yeah. No, I, I, and I assume also on the tactical level, I mean, you know, it's one thing to cross a border. It's another thing when you got a hundred mile <laughs> deep, deep water uh, division uh, between uh, between the. Yeah, I mean, obviously, two, I, right? I'm I'm an economics guy as opposed yeah. to a military yeah. guy, so I went to all those issues. You're right, though, that you know there are. I'm sure in Beijing they have to be looking at this um, the military realities in Ukraine and saying, you know, how does this? I mean, this is troubling in a way that you can't even. Russia can't even cross a border and 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 take over a sort of ostensibly weaker country. And, you know, how would we do something like that across the Taiwan Strait? Although, again, I'm getting over my skis here, but I would say that, okay. you know, that I hear from other analysts that, you know, the more likely move that Beijing would ultimately make is not a an amphibious landing um, in Taiwan, but a combination of, of um, you know, internal influence operations combined then po- possibly with uh, ultimately some kind of blockade, which would be, um, you know, easier to enforce, harder for the West to, uh, to, to penetrate. Um, so, you know, I don't know, again, I don't have a view on that right. i just you know it may not be the, the lessons may not be quite so direct as as people think militarily but but they've got to be part of the thinking in beijing okay so let's turn to you know the indo-pacific and and the the various um um, in, um initiatives partnerships alliances call them what you will uh that ha- that uh, the, the Biden administration has now f- uh, focused on I won't spend a lot of time on the security side uh but let's at least take a look what I mean what's the you know the quad uh, which is Australia Japan India and the United States actually started after that tsunami in 2007 
1987 and basically lay dormant for right. well over a decade. So what what is what is the Biden administration seeking, particularly, you know, given that India's in that in that group and India has shown a rather ambivalent attitude around many of the kind of U.S. Uh, U.S. China questions. Right. Right. But I think um, clearly the Biden administration, as you say, is doing a number of things that are kind of parallel and and and, and, you know, have a sort of broader purpose. But one of them is is um, stepping up the quad, making it a leaders level uh, forum, which it wasn't before and Mm -hmm. expanding its mandate, as you say, beyond the original maritime sort of disaster response and then ultimately maritime security function into, you know, that plus a bunch of economic and technological and other issues. Um, uh, You know, I think it's clearly a play in that particular case by the administration to, uh, you know, to reach out to India, which is obviously a large um, economic and strategic um, player of great importance, um, huge potential, uh, though, as people joke, um, India will forever be the country of the future. Um, I think that was said about another country, but uh, but so there's sort of there's I think there's uh, there's a a sense of realism going into this um, on all sides, but uh, but I do think there's a there's a, a common interest in trying to work on you know all of the above issues, and you know given India's historical um, competition with China. Um, not to say, you know, neuralgia or or um, uh, real concerns about China, um, again, historically and in the recent past um, and still today, you know, they have border disputes and, and uh, many other differences. I, I think that, um, you know, the play here in Washington is to pull India a little closer in to us and to our Western allies, you know, including um, Japan and Australia with whom we are separately doing a lot of things mm-hmm. to tighten that those alliances. And so um, so that's the play. But meanwhile, you know, the BRICS are also meeting. I mean, ironically, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the India was invited, Prime Minister Modi was invited both to the BRICS meeting uh, with, you know, Brazil, Russia, China, South China. Africa, mm-hmm. um, and then later in the week was invited as a guest at the G7 meeting. So right. clearly both sides are are making an India play here. Um, okay. How that'll turn out is is up to, you know, uh, who knows? Well, it'll be interesting. Um, so l- let's turn to this uh, IPEF, which is the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, because this is another initiative of the Biden administration. As it turns out, now there are apparently 13 uh, initial negotiating partners, including all of the ASEAN except Myanmar, Laos, and Cambodia. So in other words, all the all the ASEAN, Southeast Asia players, right? Plus, of course, uh, others, Korea, Japan, India, and on. So there are 13 mm-hmm. of them um, that uh, have agreed to initiate negotiations, right? And um, there seem to be four areas that have been identified with, I take it, separate uh, negotiation streams uh, um, identified with each one related to connected economy, which is um, the areas, seven areas, including labor and environment 
standards, resilient economy, and that's USTR. USTR has uh, has the lead on that, but all the others that I'm going to mention in just a second are Department of Commerce, not not USTR. Right. Um, the resilient eco- resilient economy, which covers supply chain kinds of issues, the clean economy, which covers infrastructure, clean energy, decarbonization, and then the fair economy, which is kind of anti-corruption, tax kinds of things. Um, I guess, the, you know, we're aware, of course, that the United States is not offering any market uh, access concessions at all or tariffs uh, reductions. And... Um, is not seeking at the moment congressional approval, obviously, obviously, but given that there are no uh, uh, tariff concessions uh, uh, here. Um, So, so, you know, many have suggested that this is not really a serious trade negotiation. How do you view it, Matt? Well, it's not a trade negotiation. In fact, the Biden administration has been pretty clear that this is not going to be a traditional trade arrangement. Um, You know, trade's in the mix here, but it's not going to be a traditional trade negotiation. Um, I think this is clearly, first of all, you know, this is the Biden administration's answer to uh, not just criticism, but their own understanding that the U.S. has to have a credible durable economic strategy in this important region. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they don't, but they don't want to go back to a traditional trade agreement like the Trans-Pacific Partnership or its successor agreement, CPTPP. Um, And so they've offered this as an agenda for, you know, discussion. And in some cases, whether they're calling it negotiation. So I think they do want to try and have, you know, kind of formal negotiations that lead to Um, from a U.S. perspective, binding commitments um, from our partners to those various things you just laid out. Um, By the way, interestingly, those four pillars of work that you defined, those adjectives, collective, resilient, all that, (laughs) that was in the U.S. own description of the the initiative. But actually, in the joint statement, those were simply called trade, supply chains, uh, clean energy, carbonization, and infrastructure, and fourthly, tax and anti-corruption. So those are really what the substantive heart of those different pillars are. Um, You know, look, the good news about this is that uh, 14 or 13 other countries Countries, signed up, which shows uh, that there is a demand signal for U.S. engagement economically in the region, which I think is is good. It's more countries than were expected to join initially. So the Biden administration deserves credit for that. You know, secondly, it's a good menu of issues. Um, all the issues we both mentioned are ones that the U.S. has a clear interest in, that partners sure. have an interest in, um, in talking to the U.S. about. So I think that's good. Uh, and then I think this could be a sort of um, soft, um, longer term uh, basis for a U.S. return to something more traditional like TPP or some broader, comprehensive, high standard regional trade agreement. Uh, the Biden administration dismisses that point, but I think, you know, just objectively that these issues, if we do make progress on them, would help lay the groundwork for a U.S. to return to something like TPP. So, so it's good for all those reasons. The problem is what you described, which is the U.S. doesn't seem to want to, and not doesn't seem to, clearly has indicated it's not going to go to Congress, ask for authority to make market access concessions to our right. trading partners. And that's what they really want. You know, we're the biggest economy in the world with a, you know, happy 
rich consumers who like to buy things from around the world. And that's what people want from us economically at the end of the day is our large market. Um, and if we're not willing to, to make that more accessible to our partners, the big question that everyone's asking, including me, is, you know, what is the offer? Right, um, right. The administration, you know, answers that by saying, you know, they're going to offer um, help with the clean energy transition or they're going to help with um, crowding in private capital for infrastructure investment in the region, or they're going to, you know, help develop these countries' digital economies. Those are things that, you know, partners in the region want. And so I think that's meaningful. But the question is, is there going to be real money and mm -hmm. sort of concentrated effort uh, and U.S. engagement sustained over time in those things? And that's still a big question for partners. Okay. OK, so let's turn now. I mean, there's there's one big uh, arena, right, uh, of of trade plus kinds of discussions. But mm -hmm. now um, we've seen uh, uh, last weekend and into the week uh, the uh, G7 meeting, uh, uh, the German G7 meeting at Schloss Emlau. Um, if my Hell German's not. working. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and um, one of the things, Biden, and obviously it was in the communique as well, uh, announced the, the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment, another real mouthful. Um, and uh, it would appear um, that this is the successor, given the leaders communique, to the Build Back Better World, which was announced a year ago in, at the G7 in the UK. And so right. it, it seems to, uh, at least in theory, uh, if not practice, uh, try to bring together something like, according uh, to the statements, $600 billion over a, a five-year period. Um major categories of projects that are that are being considered in this are uh, clean energy health systems gender equality and information not quite sure what those kinds of projects are but um, nevertheless and communications technology so uh you know the point is that that the G7 and obviously quite pointedly the um, the president indicated that this is a counter to China's BRI uh, Belt and Road mm -hmm. Initiative. Uh, why that framing? I mean, one could have this initiative, and, and uh, you know, it clearly, if carried forward, would be very significant, particularly for emerging uh, market countries, developing countries, etc. But it's it's styled in the context of a counter to be to BRI right. China's BRI. Well, one simple answer to that question is, um, you know, framing things as a as a counter China strategy here in Washington sells tickets, and and it's uh, it's it's a good way to 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 get the support for initiatives like this. But I think the the I would step back from that and say, look, there's a huge demand, a huge need for um, infrastructure of all kinds yeah. in the Indo-Pacific region. Yeah. In fact, the Asian Development Bank estimated a few years ago that you know up to 2030, um, there would be a need of as much as 27 trillion, with a T, uh, dollars worth of infrastructure yes. need in the region. And so even the 600 billion is just gonna be a drop in the bucket, but it's yeah, it's a big number. <laughs> so if, if it happens, um, it's a big contribution. So I think it's partly responding to that demand, showing that the US and its partners in the G7 and elsewhere have have something to offer 
that is that is high quality, that is uh, comes with rule of law, that has high social environmental um, safeguards, that it's um, you know doesn't get countries into huge debt problems. Um, helps them develop right. their own capacity. Right. That's the offering. And yes, that is pointedly being presented as something different um, in the characterization of the White House uh, from the way China goes about this, which is to, you know, go in aggressively, you know, drop in a lot of Chinese workers, uh, build stuff yeah, quickly <laughs> that may not be that durable, uh, that, that causes environmental problems, that uh, doesn't create local capacity or jobs uh, that are sustained. Um, and that leaves these countries in in debt problems. So um, I think those are there's a bunch of legitimate public policy concerns in there for the U.S. and its partners. And I think China has fallen short on some of those things. Um, right. But um, but I think uh, that, uh, you know, and we're not perfect on on any of those measures either. Um, and but what we're not really where we're falling short is we're just not delivering the goods. Because right. we we um, you know we don't have a lot of public money we're going to put behind global infrastructure, um, and you know the bet here is that if governments put in smart targeted money to things like project preparation or insurance projects that help mitigate the risk of these investments for private investors, then private capital will go flooding in, and you got a huge you know hundred trillion dollars worth of of um, pension funds insurance funds, uh, you know, private equity funds that that are interested in principle in investment as an asset class, but there's a lot of risk. And so if the government can help reduce the risk, make it a little more interesting uh, for the private sector, that's the bet that they're going to crowd in $600 billion. We'll see. Okay. And, and, you know, in that framing, though, one could have thought that they would have maybe targeted the AIIB, for instance, which, um, you know, from all one knows is, is you know, pretty upfront uh, um, uh, mm-hmm. infrastructure development to yep. bank yep. and or the MDBs, because the United States has also talked about uh, yep. enhancing the MDBs. And yep. yet... No, it there's there's passing separate. reference to the multilateral development banks, but it isn't yeah. sort of front and center enough in the view of me and and many other people who have started to look at this um, because they will obviously be critical. And and yes, I would include in that the AIIB, which although Chinese led, you know, is really trying to um, apply um, at least you know World Bank or World Bank Plus standards to the way it goes about infrastructure investment. So. I think um, I think I think the view on AIB has really um, evolved here and sort of softened, as it were, since the original Obama administration right. opposition to its founding about seven or eight years ago. I think now people see it as much more benign. I mean, frankly, it it hasn't been very big. It hasn't. It's if anything scaled back some of its ambition, um, and it's proven that it really is sort of committed. I think to the higher standards. So. I think it's not uh, seen as a problem, and and as you suggest, you know, it could easily be part of the the solution to to some of these stated objectives for getting infrastructure around the region. So, so I think it. it but your broader point, MDBs are definitely a critical part of this, and if the administration doesn't here doesn't follow up by getting more money for you know the World Bank, the ADB, um, and the other banks that we are members of, um, and particularly using that in ways that promote uh, risk mitigation and infrastructure investment like loan guarantee 
programs mm-hmm. or project preparation, then I think, you know, there's good reason to be skeptical about, you know, how impactful this newly branded, you know, PGII initiative is going to be. It's tough these days to remember all of the acronyms. <laughs> well, I, I hate to sort of say this because it, it then starts a, 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 a little bit of a, a buzz here, but, uh, but the Australians, when they heard the new title, apparently um, immediately dubbed it Piggy. Um, uh, uh, which, which is a little more memorable, but, uh, it is but, more memorable. Yeah. So a uh, yeah. last question, clearly we're looking forward now, particularly in the multilateral arena, uh, to the G20 and it's important in the context of the Indo-Pacific because it, um, uh, has Indonesia as the host. And, you know, going forward, India is the host Mm -hmm. and going forward even beyond that is uh, South Africa and ultimately Brazil. So this is Mm -hmm. there's the global south now having a significant role. Where does the I mean, you know, China seems to be crowded out by the United States efforts. Mm -hmm. Uh, So where where do we uh, where do we think uh, the United States is with respect to moving forward uh, with respect to the G20 and and activities there? Well, I mean, as we speak now, um, uh, both uh, Secretary of State Blinken and Secretary right. of the Treasury Yellen are Yellen. Um, mm-hmm. at G20 meetings of their respective foreign and finance ministers um, in Indonesia. So we're still engaging. Um, you know, as far as I know, the president is still planning to go to the summit in November in Bali. But I think the bigger question here is, you know, can a G20 that includes not only the global South, uh, but also China, which is technically not in the South. Um, uh, by the way, neither is most of India. Um, uh, but um, just to be geographically precise, uh, but seriously, uh, but a, a group that also includes Russia. Um, how is a group like that where, you know, just on that issue, you know, half the group is not going to want to have a conversation or really sign on to anything with Russia in the room. And the other half is not going to be willing to sign on to anything without Russia in the room. And so how you can move forward on anything but the lowest common denominator issues where maybe they can agree to not uh, do, um, I don't know, you know, export bans on on medical equipment as, as the G20 has done before. That probably most people, you know, at least in principle, if not in practice, uh, could agree to. But but and there are probably some other things like that. But on the big issues uh, of dealing with, you know, the global economy or the global financial system, uh, let alone uh, dealing with some of these um, problems of today that are prompted by uh, the Russia invasion of Ukraine, frankly, like the, the food and energy crises that we're going through. Right. It's just hard to see how this group is really going to even talk, let alone come up with anything meaningful. So I, I'm, I must say, you don't I still, see them. I, yeah, I still think the G20 is important, but it's just hard to see how it's going to deliver in these circumstances. Okay. And you don't see, you know, there's a host of working parties. There's a host of, as you point out, two ministerials going on for right. uh, foreign policy and, and treasury activity. Um, you know, there's, Forget the leaders level right. uh, at some level, but there's a host of environments where you can 
push policy making yep. uh, for the G20, and and it doesn't have to be uh, in the big showy uh, yep. leaders uh, conference. Yep. No, I agree. I mean, that's one of the reasons I think uh, the G20 is still an important forum because it does bring uh, you know senior officials and then you know bureaucratic level people together. Uh, to work on, you know, common global challenges. And I think there is room for some, uh, you know, practical work at at those levels. But I just think the expectations have to be a lot lower even for that because it's just really hard as a practical. I mean, just to take the finance ministers, for example, um, when they last Mm -hmm. met here uh, during the the World Bank um, IMF annual meetings, spring uh, meetings meetings in in, uh, April, uh, you know, yep. they they had to the Indonesians had to choreograph this arrangement where the Russian finance minister spoke last and the, the secretary Yellen and several other um, uh, Western uh, finance ministers walked out. And so that, you know, that right. but they issued a communique. So, I mean, you know, they were able to get some things done. But but that kind of environment, you know, it, it makes it hard to really, um, you know, come up with with common resolve and common action um, on the on the really important issues that the G20 is is charged with with looking at. Right. Right. Well, thank you, Matt, for joining us. It was a real pleasure. Always a pleasure to have you with us. And we'll be looking forward to observing how the G20 proceeds. Well, thank you, uh, Alan. Among other things. Thank you, Alan. I always enjoy it and um, happy to um, come back sometime. All righty.